You are listening to Graceway's weekly message podcast. We hope that this message encourages you to know and enjoy God, find friends, discover your purpose, and make a difference in your community. Enjoy the message. Okay, so we are uh, finishing up our series today, What in the World is God Doing? Uh, This is a series that's really a response to the last few years when in some version, so many of us have said, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why is this happening? Why aren't you dealing with this? Why does this keep coming back? And so, so what we said is that God is at work regardless of what the news says, but you can't join what you can't see. And so the idea was to be able to point out where God is so that we can go to where God is instead of always asking God to come and fix our stuff. Okay? And so what we said is that God is, as always, Seeking and saving the lost. If you want to be a part of what God's doing, you have to care about the lost. We've said that God is filling believers with his Holy Spirit, and he's building his church. If you want to be a part of what God's doing, you have to love the Holy Holy Spirit, and you have to be connected to a local church. We said that God wants to call farmers and recruit fighters. That's the Christian faith. That is your responsibility. That is your mission, to work on the field that is your neighborhood, your workplace, your friendships, your family, to till up the soil of those hearts, to plant God's word in them so that God's spirit can use what is planted for his glory and their joy. And then last week we talked about spiritual warfare. And how many of you this week, we talked about spiritual warfare, how many of you cussed my name this, this, this past week? Yes, I get it. Because we talked about the enemy. We talked about the enemy, and, and I told you, anytime you talk about the enemy, the enemy likes to show up. And so just want to continue to encourage you that you have victory, that he's under your feet in the name of Jesus, but you have to own it, and you have to pray it, and you got to fight it, okay? You can't just say, I thought if I just stood here silently, he would leave me alone. That's not how it works, all right? And so we talked about that last week. We're going to finish it up this week, and we're going to say, what in the world is God doing? Jesus is returning. That's what he's doing. Jesus is returning. Um, Let me pray for us, and we'll get to it. All right? God, we love you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for the church. I thank you for grace, for mercy as it was new. Lord, we need all of it now. Uh, Speak to us. Give us eyes to see Give us ears to hear. Glorify Jesus. Make much of him in our hearts. We thank you for it, and we pray these things in his name. Amen and amen. Okay, so here's my heart in talking to you today. Number one, I'm going to give you a lot of information as usual. I want you to take good notes. If you have a Bible, you need to bring it because I want you to see it for yourself. Here's my heart. I want to talk about the return of Jesus. The big word here is eschatology, belief about end times. That category has a lot of weirdness in it. Did you know that? It has a lot of weirdness in it. And the fruit of the weirdness has been two things that I don't want you to have. One is confusion, and the other is fear. Confusion and fear. And so the first part of this, I need to kind of clear off the deck around what does the Bible actually say compared to some things that are knocking around in the church that are extra biblical and not helpful. All right? So if you're a Christian in here, I want you to perk up your ears, and I want you to be open to what Scripture has to say, not to get defensive around what you used to think or somebody taught you a long time ago. Can you shake your head to that? Okay, we want to be people of the book, 
And so I'm going to try my best to, in short order, clear off the deck so that we can understand end times as the Bible does, in fact, teach it. My heart is to give you clarity around what Scripture says so that you can enjoy the truth that Jesus is, in fact, coming back to this earth personally to restore and renew and redeem all things. We don't know when, but we do know that he is coming back. And I want you to be able to fully embrace that and all of the fruit of it. So I remember as a young pastor, I had uh, a pastor of a large church. I had one conversation. He was talking to me about growing the church that I was pastoring at the time. And he said this, if you want a bunch of people to come to your church, you should talk about these two things. And I took out my notepad and I started to write. And he said, you should talk about sex and you should talk about end times because people always want to hear that. And I think he was joking. <laughs> but I'm not sure if I'm entirely honest with you. So it's interesting. We are, uh, have come through this season over the last, let's say, 50 years where you heard people talking about the return of Jesus very, very, very often. I feel like, and I think this is a good thing, that a lot of that rhetoric has toned down. I, I'm hoping that some of the conversations that we had are sort of like El Caminos and waterbeds. You know what I'm saying? Like a thing of the past. How, how many of you had a waterbed? Anyone? Yeah. How many of you still have a waterbed? Yeah. That's good. That's good. That would be weird if you still had a waterbed. Buy a sleep number, all right? Come on. It's 2023. Yeah. So, so I'm hoping that this is a, a generational thing that has occurred. And let me, let me just kind of give you my perspective on some of the things that created some problems. The first thing is that a lot of people were talking in extra-biblical ways about the return of Jesus and were just flat-out wrong in the ways that they were teaching God's Word. Revelation is a reminder that God is over time, that God is in control, that God wins. That's the point of the book of Revelation. Revelation is not an intellectual treasure hunt where we pick up historical artifacts and say, I wonder what this means in the time that we live in. That's not what it is. It's not that locusts are actually helicopters. It's not that a mountain is actually the Pope. That's not what the book of Revelation says. And a lot of teaching has led people to watch the news looking for artifacts in the idea that God talks about them in the book of Revelation. I need you to understand something. He does not. He does not. There's a lot of unwarranted certainty and a lot of details taught as scriptural that contradict what Jesus said about his return. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 36, hey, y'all, I don't even know when I'm coming back. I don't know when I'm coming back. The only person who knows when Jesus is coming back is the Father. And a lot of teaching has come out that is overly certain and extra biblical and says things that the Bible doesn't say, and it's created a lot of fear, it's created a lot of confusion, and if I'm honest, it's created a lot of eye rolls. A lot of people outside of the church think that people inside the church talking about end times are a bunch of weirdos with stockpiles of canned good in their backyard. Why? Because of teaching that's not helpful. And I also think that there's a lot of people in the church who, while we should be anticipating gladly the return of Jesus, are sort of like, man, I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what's the right way to look at it. So one is just unhelpful extra biblical teaching. The other is I think there's been a shift in emphasis. And here's what I mean by that. For a lot of years, the primary theology on end times was this, a book series called the Left Behind series. Okay? All right. So the Left Behind series uh, sold 80 million. That's your pinky in there. That's that kind of money. All right? 80 million books in the Left Behind series. Let me just tell you two quick things about the Left Behind series. The doctrine under that is an American doctrine. It came into vogue since America has existed. It is an American doctrine. It is about 150 years old. Now, let me just real quick math here, okay? The church is about 2,200 years old. Are you with me? Yeah. This doctrine that has been espoused to about 80 million people and then turned into a movie with some actor that I've never heard of, or maybe Nicolas Cage. Was Nicolas Cage in it? Anyways. All right. Espouses a doctrine that is American and that is new in terms of the body of Christ. Now, all that I'm saying about it is that you should be suspicious of doctrines that espouse that for 2,000 years they got it wrong, but we're getting it right. That's all that I'm saying, all right? You can send me an email if you want. It's going to be a short response. That's all that I'm saying. That's all, that's all that I'm saying. There's been a shift away from that type of theology and really the advent of podcasts and, uh, and, and honestly, uh, iTunes, where lots of prominent voices with different perspectives were speaking into the church in a helpful way. And they were saying things like this. Revelation 1 and verse 1 says that this is a prophecy concerning things that will soon occur. Now, think about that for a second. Jesus says everything in this book is going to happen when? I just said it. Not a trick question. Okay? It's going to happen soon. Is 2,000 years later soon? It is not. It is not. So here's what I need you to understand. The book of Revelation is not all future. In fact, most of it has already occurred. Most of it's history. Now, there are some things in it that are yet to occur, but when we come to the book and say, this is all yet to happen, and where are we in the story that's occurring, you're getting it wrong from jump. Here's why, and I say this to you all the time, you shouldn't believe it if the people that it's written to didn't believe it. Whenever the people who got the revelation that was given to them, seven churches around what is now modern Turkey, read, this is about to happen, they thought, okay, in our lifetime. And guess what? They were right. A lot of it already happened. A lot of it already happened, and that in and of itself should clean up a lot of silliness for you. It already happened. There's a couple things that are yet to occur, but most of it has already occurred. There's a shift from this vertical pursuit of faith that is between me and God and of pious behavior, meaning i got to be holy because one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to pull me out of here. And that's where bumper stickers like, in the event of the rapture, this car will be unmanned come from. <laughs> Bad theology, but it's a funny bumper sticker, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, this idea that the, the return of Jesus is really just about me getting out of here, me believing the right thing, me being prepared, that's not the way the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about the bride being prepared. The Bible talks about the bride being 
prepared, not just between them and God, but the bride not only being prepared, by preparing, it's not vertical, it's horizontal, by preparing the lost community for the fact that the king is soon returning. It's not only vertical, it's horizontal, and we've been teaching it like, Jesus is coming back, you better get your stuff together. That's not how the Bible talks about it. It's not how the Bible talks about it. So we've had some shifts. We've had some shifts in theology. We've had some shifts in voices. We've had some shifts from ideas like this. When the Bible talks about the return of Jesus, it's this idea that on the cross, Jesus paid for the restoration of all things. Come on, say amen. Okay, I know you're thinking. It's good. The return of Jesus is an already, and how many of you know that Jesus hasn't yet come back? The payment has been made. Redemption is on layaway. Y'all remember layaway, speaking of old things? Yeah. I go to Kmart. I can't afford this. I put it on layaway. You get a dollar a month for 19 years, right? Yeah. The redemption of all things is on layaway, so to speak. It is already paid for, but it has not yet occurred. That's a great theology on the return of Jesus. Already, not yet. Here's how a lot of us understand it. Hold on tight until Jesus comes back. You, you, you hear the difference? Let, let's just figure out a way to be holy. Let's figure out a way to believe the right things. Let's just cloister ourselves off at a, as a church so we don't get dirty, so we're ready for Jesus to come back, and then God's going to get us out of here before anything hard happens. That's a lot of the functional theology of end times. And, and, and I just want to say to you, it's, it's not helpful because it's not biblical. Because it's not biblical. And then here's the big one. Um, when I uh, read through, over the last 50 years, eschatological teaching, preaching, writing, speaking, I hear a lot of how and when Jesus is going to come back. Here's what's going to be happening when Jesus comes back. Here's when he's going to come back. Some folks contradict Jesus out and out and actually say a date, okay, which is crazy. The amount of times that cats have been wrong doing that and people still do it, it's comedic and, 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 and heartbreaking at the same time, okay? We spend a lot of time talking about how and when Jesus is going to come back instead of this, this very simple idea, that Jesus is going to come back. It's as though the news of Jesus coming back needs a little clickbait on it. That's how we talk about it. We want, we want to add all of this how and when, and this is what it means, and this is, uh, uh, and here's who's going to get elected, and here's what's happened in the EU, and here's the newest type of helicopter and stealth bomber, blah, 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 and watch this and listen to this, and how about, hey, y'all, Jesus is coming back. Is that enough? It's supposed to be. That Jesus is coming back is supposed to be the headline, and that idea in and of itself, is supposed to be more than enough for the church to rally around. More than enough. When the Bible brings up the second coming, which it does a lot, by the way, over 300 times, meaning that one out of every 13 verses, Paul or Jesus or John or one of the authors says, hey, y'all, Jesus is coming back. One out of every 13 verses in the New Testament. But it is never taught to get you to speculate how or when. It is always taught to say, Jesus is coming back, and it is to get you passionate about living now, and it is to get you purposeful living here. That's the point. 
That's the point. The point of New Testament teaching on the second coming isn't to create intrigue. It isn't to get you to listen to the thing or buy the book. It isn't to get you confused or give you an intellectual headache. It is to get you excited that one day, finally, the king, the king, is going to come back. That's the news. And in light of the king coming back, how should you live today? That's it. That is the New Testament teaching when it comes to the second coming. I want to encourage you that if you have nerves about Jesus coming back, if you feel confused, if you have fatigue, good. You're right. It is nerve-wracking. It is confusing. It is stressful because it is simpler and it is better when you understand what Scripture teaches. So how do we live like Jesus is coming back? So 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 and 2 says this. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. You already know. You know what you need to know, is what Paul is saying. You know that Jesus is coming back, and that's good. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So Paul says, you know what you need to know about the second coming of Jesus, um, but let me just remind you something. It's going to happen like a thief in the night. Okay, so quick confession here. I'm not a thief. Okay, yep. Um, but my presumption is that the idea of stealing something is to show up at a time that the individual who owns the thing isn't there to catch you doing it, right? In other words, Paul is saying the return of Jesus isn't going to be like, oh, there's Jesus. Wow, here he comes. Oh, he took a break. He stopped at QT to get a slush, right? Like, nope. Yep, there he is. It isn't going to be like, oh, look, that happened, and that happened, and that happened, and this, and this, and here's the algorithm, and here's the pie chart, and here's the thing, and now one plus one plus a million equals the return of Jesus. That's not how it happens. It actually happens that God says when we are not expecting it, Jesus is going to come back. It's like a thief in the night. So when we're talking about how should you live now, here's what I need you to understand. You cannot, you cannot live, um, you can't time preparedness. Are you with me? You, you can't, you can't like walk around with your Bible like you care about it in the event that Jesus comes, shows up and you go, oh, oh yeah, no, just reading my Bible, just reading my Bible. And everyone's like, you ain't read that Bible for 14 years. What are you talking about? No, no, look, I, look, Jesus. That's not, that's not how it works. You shouldn't buy a house next to Graceway so you can run over here when Jesus comes back. That's, you can't time preparedness. You have to live prepared. You got you to live prepared. You have to be someone, here it is, that surprise does not change. Okay, You can't be like that teenager who, who when you open their door, they jump on the bed and go, what, what? What are you doing? Nothing. Why would you, why would you ask that? This is what a lot of Christians do. And it's the reason that pastors, in good intention, try to 
try to give you more details than the Bible gives you. Because, they, because I want you to be prepared for Jesus to come back. But I can't tell you things that the Bible doesn't say to prepare you for Jesus coming back. Are you with me? You're just going to have to live in the assumption that Jesus is going to come back that you don't know when, so you ought to act like it might be today. You ought to act like it might be today. Remember the story of the virgins in Matthew 25. Five were prepared and five were not prepared. There are things that we do in our life that prepare us for the return of Jesus in the belief that he's going to come back. It doesn't induce the return of Jesus. And all you need to know is that Jesus is coming back. That's all you need to know. It's more than enough. It's more than enough. So three things that I want to teach you today. Number one, the return of Jesus sets our priorities. The return of Jesus sets our priorities. And you know that this is true because you've had people that you care about come to your house for dinner. Right? If you're married, you've had this conversation. Babe, the such and suches are coming over on Friday, so I need you to mow the lawn, go to the grocery store, make the bed, clean out the thing, and you're like, you know what? Forget it. I'm not doing all that for these people. Right? No, what's the idea? There are certain ways that create preparedness, and part of preparedness is having priorities. So Martin Luther says this, there are two days in my calendar. Now just listen to this and think about it for a minute. Martin Luther says there's, there's just two days in my calendar. This day and that day. That's it. Two days, the one I'm in and the one that Jesus comes back. There are only biblically two days that you are promised. This one and that one. You are sitting in here today because apparently God is giving you part of today. Now, you might go out and do something stupid and enter into his presence later. You don't get the whole thing, but you at least get a part of this day. You can be as certain that you were given part of this day that Jesus is coming back on that day. You are not promised more. Hear this. You are not promised more. Proverbs 27, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. It doesn't mean don't be cocky about tomorrow. It means don't assume you get it. James 4 and verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then you vanish. What is your life? <sighs> that. You say, well, it feels more substantial than that. Of course it does. But in the grand scheme of God's plan and working in creation, this thing that you call your life, 70 years, give or take, it will be here and gone before you know it. Can I, can I tell you how I know? Because I remember bringing my son home when his head fit in my hand. He had a huge dun head. It's, it's not his fault. It's my fault, all right? And his feet... His feet sat in my elbow ditch. I held him like this, and I cried because I was so happy that God had given me a baby boy. His name is Noah. He is now 16, and he is six foot one. And I resent it deeply. <laughs> Can I tell you how quick that happened? Yesterday I brought him home from the hospital. Yesterday. And he came down a year ago, and he was looking down at me. What? 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 
happened. You know this. We talk like this, but it's interesting. You can see it out there, but you don't feel it in here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray. And what does he pray? God, give us this day. He says it twice. This day, our daily bread. He doesn't say, give me what I need to retire well. It's not in there. It doesn't say, give me what I need to pay for this month's bills. It says, pray today for today. Why should I only pray for that? Because you don't know if you're getting tomorrow. Can I listen to this? The enemy tempts us to think about any other day than this day or that day. Any day. I don't care which day you think about, as long as it's not today or the day Jesus comes back. So think about your past with all the crazy stuff you did, all the stuff you're ashamed about, all of the shame and all of the embarrassments and all of the, if I knew now what I didn't know then, I would do blah, 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 blah. But you ain't got a time machine. It's gone. Some of you are wasting your life worrying about yesterdays. So the enemy says, think about your past. Or, or what's the other one? Think about your future. And you think about things that haven't even happened yet. As though you have control. As though you have any control or say or sway or influence. You don't even know that you're going to be there. Some of you are worrying about retiring, and you don't even know if you're going to be on this planet to retire. That's what the Bible says. That's what the, that's what the Bible says. And so what does the enemy say? Think about any day, but this day or the day Jesus comes back. And the Bible says the exact opposite. The only days that you should worry about are Jesus is coming back and you have today. You think about what your priorities are should be if that day impacted this day. What would be important if you believed, forget all the buffoonery, if you just simply believe that Jesus came, is coming back and that it could be this day? What would be important to you? What would not be important to you? What would you want to start doing? What would you want to stop doing? It's clarifying. How would you get ready in the belief today that Jesus is coming back someday? Listen, I'm telling you, that Jesus is coming back is all you need to believe about the second coming. It's more than enough. It's more than enough. You literally could plan the rest of your life on Jesus is coming back. And someone would be like, well, when? Is it pre-trib or post-trib or oh, blah, blah, blah? And you're like, I mean, I don't know. I just think that. He's coming back. And it's enough to incentivize and prioritize my life. So let me just give you two things that I know you should do if you believe Jesus is coming back someday and it might be today. Are you ready? Number one, you should try to look like Jesus. You should try to look like Jesus. Here's what the Bible says in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Listen to this next phrase. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So here's what the Bible says. When you see Jesus in a moment, you will, look, you will be like Jesus. 
We call it your glorified body, but you have a glorified mind. All the aching knees and all the all the the ulcers you've developed and all the bad attitudes and all the bad how just gone boom as soon as i see jesus all of the effects of sin will vanish from my life okay here's what the bible says because you believe that you should practice today because you believe that one day you will be just like jesus And because you understand that the kingdom has been given to you now in part and will be given to you in full at another time, you should purify yourself today to be prepared for that day. There are certain things, I'm just going to make it real simple for you, that you would never, ever, ever say, ever watch, ever act like if your spouse knew, let alone Jesus. There are certain things you'd never click on. There are certain things you wouldn't spend your money on. If you just believed that anybody knew, let alone that Jesus could show up and you could turn around and be face-to-face with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I know that if you thought the only two days on your calendar are today and that day, that there are certain ways that you would order your day in the possibility that Jesus could show up today. You would look like Jesus, and number two, you would love your neighbor. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So I'll just tell you something. When I stand before Jesus, I want him to know that I loved him before I saw him. Don't you? I don't want to introduce myself to Jesus at the second coming. I want to know him when I see him. I don't don't want to be surprised what he looks like or how he acts. I want to know now because I loved him today. And I don't want to be alone. Because one of the ways that God says we express love to him is by telling other people about him. The way you love your neighbor well at the most elemental is you tell them about what and who you love because you know that one day they will meet him in the same way that you will. One day, everybody will stand before God, prepared or unprepared. And I'll just tell you, one of the things that motivates me more than anything is that I'm terrified, I think in a holy way, to be standing beside somebody who is standing in front of God for the very first time, and they are a stranger to him, but they knew me. And I don't want them to look at me and say, really? All this time, you knew I was going to be standing in front of this dude, and you said nothing. You talked to me about the chiefs and the stock market and the election and the new landscaping tool, and you never told me about Jesus. I can't imagine. I cannot, I cannot imagine. If you believed, listen, that this day and that day, that's it. There are certain things you would do differently. You would want to look like Jesus, and you would want to love your neighbor. And here's the thing. It doesn't just create priorities. It should create passions. Church folks who believe in the second coming should care about holiness and should care about missions. And I don't mean care about, I mean be obsessed with. 
Why? Because Jesus is coming back. When? I don't know. How? I don't know. I just know that he is. And I want to be ready when the king shows up. I want to be ready when the king shows up. Number two, the return of Jesus frees us to forgive. We, uh, we love talking about the return of Jesus because, because we want justice, don't we? And because we're tired of a world where justice does not exist. We're tired of a world with corruption, with greed run amok, with the haves and the have-nots, where, where, where poverty is tied to the color of your skin and the neighborhood you were born into. We're tired of a world that is unequal, where discrimination and racism exists. We're tired of a world where there's less access, where there's, in the richest country in the history of the world, they're still under education and food insecurity. What, what is happening? What, what, we're, we're, we're tired of a world where domestic abuse exists, where gun violence exists, where wars exist, where unsolved crimes exist. And, and we get to a spot where we're like, enough! Just come back, Jesus! Like, what? What is happening? And it's appropriate. But, but hear me out. If you long for justice out there, believing that God, day, God will one day bring it and impose it, right? There will be no, there's no vote, right? It's wham! justice. If you believe that, and if you long for that, be careful to not play judge, jury, and executioner in your relationships now. If you say, Jesus, come back and establish justice, that judgment seat, that ain't your seat. How many of you have seen the movie Lord of the Rings, or for you highbrow folks, have read the book? Yeah. J.R. Tolkien talks about this ring of power, and Frodo has to carry this ring to the fires of Mordor so that it can be destroyed. But it's so powerful that it begins to change him, right? You can't carry this ring for too long because it's not your ring. Watch. You can't sit in a judgment seat for long because you don't have the power or the character or the purview or the perspective to be judge, jury, and executioner. That's why you long for the day that Jesus comes back and does not what they can't, what you can't. What you can't. What I can't. The judgment seat is coming. But you ain't sitting on it. So don't try to do it now. You say, where is this in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Romans 14 and verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord. Talking like a southerner, right? Every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess to God. And then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I need to forgive you because I'm not your judge. And because one day God's going to ask me why I didn't forgive you when I was forgiven by him. I'm telling you, if you just believe that Jesus is coming back, it's more than enough. It's more than enough. It affects everything about today. It affects your relationships. It affects how you interact with the people around you. It affects the things you spend your time on and the things that you love. Just that Jesus 
is coming back. Listen, the reason that you should forgive your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your neighbor or your coworker or your boss is because God forgave you. And one day, he will hold you to account in the same way he will hold them to account. And listen, you're a terrible judge, jury, and executioner because you want it to be about revenge that you call justice. God says, one day, I'll deal with them. But today, I need you to forgive them. Today, I need you to forgive them. And then lastly, the return of Jesus gives hope. It gives hope. The return of Jesus sets our priorities. The return of Jesus frees us to forgive. The return of Jesus gives hope. Titus 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly, here it is, in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Watch, if you're a follower of Jesus and the return of Jesus makes you concerned or confused or anxious or afraid, you're doing it wrong. You're misunderstanding. What does Paul call it? Our blessed hope. The return of Jesus is our blessed hope. Let me also say this, especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time. If you're a follower of Jesus, hoping that Jesus doesn't return until you experience certain events, you're doing it wrong. I'm serious. I remember what it was like to be single and hope that Jesus came back the day after my wedding night. I get it. I get it. I, 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 but some of us were like, Jesus, don't come back until I get to take the trip. Don't come back until I get to check the thing off my bucket list. Don't, don't come back until the, the Royals win the World Series. And God's like, really? You want me to wait that long? Right? I just got to slide it in every week, all right? Listen, if your perspective is that there's anything on this side of eternity that even remotely competes with the return of Jesus, you're doing it wrong. And we have a tendency to take these huge macro theologies and make them about us. Yeah, 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 Jesus come back and put everything right, but do it after, I get to do the thing. You see, for, for most of church history, the idea of the coming kingdom had tangible benefits. Whenever you're under an oppressive regime, you want a better king. Whenever you're living in disease and pestilence, you want the healer to come back. Whenever you're under persecution for things that you and I believe for free, you want Jesus to come back and establish justice. Cornelius Plantinga says the return of Christ is good news for people who have lived their lives filled with bad news. Here's the problem. We got it pretty good. That's the problem. We, we have it pretty good, and it messes up with our belief systems. It messes our belief systems. We're lulled, hear me, we're lulled by abundance, and we're lulled by privilege. We are. The fact that there are Christians walking around hoping that Jesus doesn't come back until should scare the mess out of you. Listen, is it possible 
that you have forgotten what it was like to be broken by sin. Is it possible, hear me, hear me and feel what I'm saying, that you've forgotten what it was like to wake up each and every morning under sin's boot? Tossed by every whim and wind by the God of this world who is the devil who only wants to steal and kill and destroy. Is it possible that we have forgotten, church, what sin is and what it does and what it produces? Things like astronomically high gun violence in this, our city, Kansas City. Things like school shootings, things like terrorism, things like inequality, domestic abuse, wars, famines, disease, pandemics, corruption, and greed. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about you, personally, waking up in the morning with this sense that you feel like there's got to be something more. But you don't know what it is, and you don't know how to get it. And you don't know anybody who does. You want it and this to have some meaning and to have some transcendence, but you don't know what it feels like, and you don't know what it sounds like, and you don't know what to look for. So you just go out and you do the thing. What's the thing you do? You, you get an education and you get a job and you find somebody you can put up with for the rest of your life and you procreate and have 2.5 kids and that's not filling it. So you go out and you buy the new thing that you can't afford and buy the TV that's bigger than your eyes can track with and you get on the rat race that we call the American dream and you chug day after day after day after day after day and you wonder why doesn't this feel any different? Why isn't this working? Why doesn't this thing and all the things that I've accumulated fill this hole that I feel squarely in the middle of my chest? Do you remember what it was like to have suffering be pointless? To have that bad day or that bad season or that bad year just be a meaningless fraction that will eventually total up to your life and then you'll be gone and then it'll be over. Just another bad deal, another divorce, another suicide, another bankruptcy, another. And everybody you know is having the exact same experience and nobody feels like it's tied to anything. And nobody knows how to help it. And no, no one cares because I have my own thing and no one's coming to help and there definitely is no redemption. There's no good thing on the other side of this. Do you remember what it feels like to wake up in the morning and the only thing you could conceive that is good is the weekend? I get Monday off for Memorial Day. Do you remember what it was like to think that all there is to God is religion and rules? To never know that you're loved, to never know that you're forgiven, to never know that you can be free, that there's victory, to never know that hope exists and that it's bigger than you and that it's free in Jesus, to never know. Listen, this world needs hope. And if you're a Christian, you're the only one who has it. You're the only one who has it. You're the only one walking the... You might be the only person in your neighborhood who actually has hope. I don't mean wishful thinking. I mean actual hope tied to an actual thing, tied to an actual person who actually can save you. 
You're the, you might be the only one. You might be the only one in your workplace. You might be the only one in your family. You might be the only one in your family tree. You have something that nobody else has. Hope. Listen, you want to be a part of what God's doing. What? God, what are you doing? You want, you want to see what God is doing? God's at work everywhere. You want to be a part of what God's doing? You got to care about people with no hope. You got to care about people dead in trespasses and sins. But it's bigger than you, so you got to say, God, I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Because I need more power than I have on my own. So fill me up with your Holy Spirit and give me eyes to see and ears to hear. And you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. So you got to be connected to a church of other people who love Jesus and care about the lost and are filled up with the Holy Spirit. And yeah, we get together in a building once a week and we do the thing and rah, 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 and yeah, yeah, yeah. But we go out because there's work to do and it's a hopeless, dark, dank space. You got to be a spiritual farmer. You gotta name your territory, your workplace, your family, and you gotta pray their name to the Most High God. You gotta get up in the morning, you gotta put all that armor on, right? Because even if you don't believe in the enemy, the enemy believes in you and he's trying to kill you. You gotta engage in spiritual warfare. You gotta live on purpose, you gotta bring the kingdom, and here it is, you gotta be a hope dealer. You wanna be a part of what God's doing, you gotta be a hope dealer. You're the only one that has it. God's at work everywhere. He wants to be at work in you. He wants to call you into purpose. He wants to call you into meaning. He wants to call you into blessing. Yeah, he wants to call you into farming. He wants to call you into work. But he gave you something that nobody else has and everyone desperately needs. So please hear me and then we're done. Please stop worrying about the things. Please stop trying to keep up with the Joneses who have the things that you know aren't going to bless them. Please stop watching the news about kingdoms you're not a part of. Please receive the hope that you have in Jesus. He didn't just give it to you for you to keep it and bury it in your backyard. He gave it to you to deal it to everyone that you see. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. That's what in the world God is doing. He's offering hope, and he gave it to you, so you'll give it to them. God, we love you today. God, I thank you that you have given me hope. God, I thank you that you've given me purpose. God, I thank you that you've given me truth. God, I thank you that you've given me mercy and forgiveness and freedom. And God, I thank you that the way you gave them to me was by saving me through the personal work of Jesus. He's the one who holds it all together. And God, I thank you that you aren't done with us and you aren't done with this world. I thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing. God, give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. God, fill us up with your Holy Spirit. God, armor us up with the person and work of Jesus and then help us, God, to go into this, our mission field, Raytown and Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas and deal the hope of the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. God, I thank you that you're coming back soon. But God, I wanna be ready and I wanna be prepared. And so God, I seek you today. I call out to you today. Give us what we need today so we can be prepared for that day. We love you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen and amen. Hey, thank you for coming today. Love you so much. If you came prepared to give, you can do it at the doors. I hope you have a great week. I'll see you.